0: Good morning. good morning. Be opening your Bibles this morning one last time to Matthew 14. Not one last time, open your Bibles, but one last time to Matthew 14. Mark your spot. We're going to get there. But we've looked at these 21 verses through a microscope for several weeks. Bear down on uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14 looking at Jesus' fame, John the Baptist's fate, and uh, and Herod's folly. Then we looked at uh, the narrative of John the Baptist's murder by Herod, and we looked at that from two angles, a case study and John the Baptist's uh, speaking the truth, and then of Herod's suppressing the truth, he and Herodias. And then we turned to the feeding of the 5,000. we got the microscope out again and we bared down hard verse by verse, looking at the particulars emphasizing Jesus' compassion. Then last week we looked at the, verse, the verses differently, or, or at least really at the concepts that are related to the verse differently, getting the micro I mean the telescope out for a big picture of biblical theology kind of sermon. We focused in on the themes that are rooted in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New. And these these themes are central to the whole structure and content of the book of Matthew. And they include the conflict between the lineage of King Herod and King Jesus, these conflicting kings. John the Baptist's role in that conflict and the implications for the future of the temple. And this morning we're going to keep our telescope out. We're going to narrow the focus in a bit to show how an understanding of the themes we explored last week is necessary to helping us understand exactly what Matthew's doing in his presentation of these two consecutive uh, narratives of Herod's murderous birthday party and then right on the heels of that giving the feeding of the 5,000. And I believe the purpose of that to be a contrast between the crony King Herod and the Christ the King, Jesus. We're going to run through Matthew briefly to get back to our text again. Then we're going to look at the context of Matthew's gospel, a contrast as the point of this text, and then how it points forward to communion and the crucifixion with these same themes being ran over again and again throughout the book of Matthew. So turn with me. you got your finger marking chapter 14. And go back to chapter 1. Because chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 kind of lay out these three characters with, exact, with just perfect chapter divisions. In chapter 1 we see the birth, the genealogy and the birth of King Jesus. That Jesus, the Messiah, well that sets things up there, doesn't it? Because Messiah, mess, Messiah means the anointed one. Another way of saying the Christ. He is the anointed king, the true promised king that God would send into the world and that he would be the son of David and the son of Abraham. That already pits him against King Herod, doesn't it? Because King Herod is not a son of David, although he is a son of Abraham. Verse two, it breaks out. It, it emphasizes that through Isaac, the father of Jacob, who's the father of Judah and his brothers, so Isaac is then traced through the lineage of Jacob, not Esau, in verse two. So once again, Jesus through uh, Jacob, and who through uh, through Jacob, and then who is Herod born through? That we looked at last week, through Esau, through that one that's left out of this lineage. Because he's not a Jew. Herod was not even a Jew. The king that's sitting on the throne, the king of the Jews, is not a Jew. We've got that problem laid out in the very beginning of the genealogies. We jump forward, you trace through the rest of these genealogies and there's other things that are worthy of pointing out. But then you get to the birth narrative. And it again emphasizes Jesus as the promised king. Look at verse 18 where it calls Jesus again the Christ. We've already explored what that means. In verse 20, he calls Joseph a son of David. And then in verse 21, she will bear a son, his wife. And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's going to have a king. He's going to be the king. He's going to be the true king over the people. And he's going to be the one that saves them from their sins. Something Herod could absolutely never do. And even more than a mere human king, Matthew points out that Jesus is much more. In verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and she shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated means God with us. That this king would be God himself incarnate in the form of a man and in appearance as a man to save his people from their sins. But Jesus was born during the reign of King Herod who was also prophesied in Scripture. Jesus was that shoot from the stump of Jesse that we explored last week. And he couldn't be born. this Where the king line was cut off from the tribe of Judah, this promised king, this branch that would shoot up, couldn't be born until there was a non-Juda-born king on the throne. We pointed out last week that that's King Herod that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, Genesis 49:10, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh, which means the one to whom it belongs comes, and to him finally will be the obedience of the people. And that sets up an ongoing conflict. There was no king of the Jews for over 500 years. From the time that it was taken away from King Jeconiah all the way back 500 and, uh, 557 B.C. And then finally, Herod the Great, a descendant of Esau, an Edomite, used flattery and gifts to gain favor from the Roman government and was declared king in 37 B.C. Jesus had to come uh, during that time, during Herod's lifetime, for the prophecy to be fulfilled. And Of course, we saw that by the time he's born, Herod, when he's born, Herod is still on the throne. And we get to that in chapter 2. Turn to chapter 2. So we have Jesus, the promised king, in chapter 1, explaining how he arrives on the scene and how he's fulfilling all these prophecies. And then in chapter 2, we see the rival King Herod, this non Judah born king. When Herod heard from the Magi that an alleged king had been, uh, had been born, well, he didn't just roll over, did he? Herod wanted to kill Jesus. He wanted to eliminate this rival king. But God's plan can't be thwarted. You can't, you can't overturn God's plan. And all of Herod's plans to thwart the plans of God, they were only more deeply established. Just consider the locations that are highlighted in chapter 2. Look at the uh, when Herod uh, he gathered together. Look at verse four. All the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them uh, where the Messiah, the promised King, was to be born. You now he's trying to find out so he can have him killed, right? And then they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, and they cited the scriptures for thus it has been written in the by the prophet, and they quotes Micah five two. Well, Herod then sends the Magi to Bethlehem and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you found him, report to me so that I too can come and worship him. Well, he's a liar, isn't he? wasn't we intending to worship him at all. we have got this conflict. Herod wants rid of this promised Messiah, this promised son of David, this threat to his throne. He knows he's the first non-Juda born king that there's ever been. He knows that the Messiah would be born during his lifetime. And he wants to eliminate the threat to secure the line, the king, the throne for himself and for his descendants after him. Herod had no interest in worshiping Jesus. Wanted him killed. And that takes us to a second location. God wasn't going to let that... Happen. So he warns Joseph in a dream. And he says, Flee to Egypt. Look at verse 12. And remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. In verse 15, they went to Egypt and he remained there until the death of Herod and that was to fulfill, that was was spoken by the word of the Lord through the prophets, out of Egypt I have called my son. Well, which one is it? it? Was the Messiah going to be from Bethlehem or out of Egypt was he going to call his son? Well, God set it up exactly where it would be both, didn't he? But God wasn't done with these locations because he wasn't only going to be of uh, Bethlehem. And then through the threat of Herod, it actually chases their family to Egypt. So this other type can be established from Hosea 11.1, 1, Out of Egypt I've called my son. But it takes us back to the place where... I mean, even here, though, it takes us to the place where Jacob or Israel gave the blessing of Genesis 49.10. uh, that the scepter would not depart from Judah nor the lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. God chased him there as a reminder that the Shiloh had came, that the scepter wasn't where it needed to be. He goes back to the source, to the place, to the country, Egypt, where that prophecy was given. But they don't stay there. And where do they go from there? When they're returning out, when they're leaving Egypt... We go to verse 23. They came out of Egypt after Herod died and they said, He that sought the life of the child has died. You can go back into Israel and they didn't go into Judea because of uh, the threat of Archelaus. So they went and they lived in a city called Nazareth. And once again, what do we see? That was so that it might be fulfilled. You can't thwart God's plans. Everything you try to do to thwart God's plans only leads to them being fulfilled all the more. But what was fulfilled this time? That which was spoken through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Uh, as we looked at last week, Nezer is the Hebrew word for branch. The shoot that would rise from the stump of Jesse. The branch that would come out from where it was. The town of Nazareth was literally named after Isaiah 11 1 2 through 2. The shoot will spring from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. That this. Branch that would come up from the chopped off kingly line has arrived. Out of Egypt I've called my son. He was prophesied of that when he would come when the scepter departed from Judah. Now the scepter's departed and he goes to Nazareth to just scream at Herod and scream at everybody else that this is the promised king. The one who would replace King Herod on the throne and reign eternally. Nazareth was originally settled by a remnant of Israel who returned from the exile from David's line and who intentionally gave their new settlement a messianic name. They called the name Nazareth on purpose to point to the prophecy of Isaiah 11, 1-2. And neither Herod nor any other mortal could stop what God had ordained. Jesus was the shoot that had sprung up from the stump of Jesse. And Jesus ends up being called not Jesus of Bethlehem, Not Jesus of Egypt, but Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus from the city of the branch. That's what he's known as just like he had to be because he was the branch. Everything about Jesus pits him against the Herodian kings. Jesus, the son of David, that's a problem for the Herodians, isn't it? He's the promised son of David. Jesus Christ, or Messiah, meaning the anointed king, that's a problem for King Herod. Jesus of Nazareth, once again, Jesus from the city of the branch, the promised branch that would replace the one who the scepter went to who was not from the tribe of Judah. Again, a problem for King Herod. But there was no escaping it. Jesus had come as the promised king of the Jews. The days had come, as it says in Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And that was another thing. How different can you be from unrighteous, ungodly, murderous King Herod? Jesus was everything that Herod wasn't. This righteous branch would save his people from their sins, as it said in chapter 1. And, and saving people from their sins, is that a kingly function or is that a priestly function? That's a priestly function, isn't it? Well, the king, the, uh, king and priest had always been separate offices. But the Old Testament also tells us, as we pointed out last week, in Zechariah 6, 12-15, that this branch would do something. Behold a man whose name is Branch, Zechariah six twelve. For he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. He would be a priest on his throne, as we pointed out last week, the uniting of these offices Now the crown will be a reminder in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. Now I wanted to set this up because that leads us to chapter 3. In order for the branch to unite the offices, he had to completely obey the Lord his God. The Pharisees had thought that they would teach the way to, to live righteously, but they messed it all up, didn't they? And that's what the ministry of John the Baptist was all about. And that's who we get to in, in chapter 3, the forerunner of Christ. The Old Testament makes it clear, look at chapter 3, that the Messiah wouldn't just show up on the scene unannounced, but that there would be a herald who would announce the Messiah's arrival, calling the people to submission to this new king, to prepare the way of the Lord. And we see it clearly in three Old Testament texts that you'll hear and you'll know them right off Isaiah 4, 3 through 5. A voice is calling in the wilderness, make. Clear the way for the Lord. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain, a broad valley. That he would make the path that the Messiah would walk in, he would make it straight and clear and easy. He would mess up everything that was wrong about the tradition of that time, the tradition of the elders. That was the ministry of John the Baptist. Malachi three one. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before. Before me, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. He would be the one that would walk in the way cleared by the Messiah. And he would be the one that after that way was prepared that would come into his temple. That would fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 6. And then lastly, the last Old Testament text pointing to John the Baptist is Malachi 4, 4-6. through Remember the law of Moses, my servant. That this... John the Baptist would remember the law of Moses his servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Here we see how John the Baptist relates to the connectedness of the Herodian kings and King Jesus John the Baptist preaches the unadulterated, pure law of God. He calls out the hypocrisy of the tradition of the elders. The righteousnesses of the scribes and Pharisees is nowhere near good enough to usher in the kingdom and escape the judgment of God. So he's restoring the straight paths of the law and proclaiming what it looks like to completely obey the Lord your God so that the branch could unite the offices. And you've got both of these kings... King Jesus, announced in chapter 1, and King Herod, announced in chapter 2. You've got Christ the King, announced in chapter 1. You've got the crony king, announced in chapter 2. You've got the forerunner who would make the straight paths that the true king that would establish his his, his throne forever had to walk in to unite the offices to save his people from their sins. Well, how do you think John the ba- Jesus responded to the preaching of John the Baptist? Well... He accepted it as from God. Look at Matthew 3, 13 through 15. Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. To say, yes, teacher John, you've got the law right. I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to immerse myself in your teaching. I'm going to fulfill it. I'm going to walk in the paths you've laid out. John tried to prevent him, saying, we don't have anything to be cleansed of. Yeah, I have need to be baptized by you, yet you come to me. But Jesus' wasn't for cleansing. It was for saying, I'll live this out. I'll walk in the paths that you've preached and I'll do it perfectly. And Jesus answered and said, Permit it at this time or suffer it to be so. For in this way it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. All the righteousness of the law. You preached it. I'm going to be baptized into it. Walk in the paths you've laid out so that... I can fulfill the promises of Zechariah 6. Unite the offices. Be the temple. Be the sacrifice. Save the people from their sins. Be the king priest. That's what Jesus did. That's how he responded to John the Baptist. But how does the Herodian king respond? Look to Matthew 4 verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Herod was called to repentance, told as we see in Matthew chapter 14, that it's not lawful for him to have his brother's wife Herodias. And instead of repenting at the preaching of John the Baptist, just the opposite of being immersed in it, he rejected it completely and arrested John. In the Old Testament, Elijah had called King Ahab to repentance and was unheeded. John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come, whose preaching is an indictment on the wickedness of the crony kings of the Herodian dynasty and a commendation on the righteousness of Jesus, the branch from the stump of Jesse. That's why when John sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the man who can live it out. This is the man who lives the way that I'm saying that a man should live. Not King Herod. The Shiloh who was to come. To whom the scepter and the ruler's staff rightly belonged. The one who would fulfill all righteousness. So Herod had John arrested for calling him to repentance. And once John was arrested, Jesus picked up his message. John had said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus walks it out and preaches the same message in, in Matthew 4.1. Repent. At 4.17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Herod didn't check any of the messianic boxes. And Edomite, he was a descendant of Esau instead of Israel. He wasn't even a Jew. He certainly wasn't from the tribe of Judah. He was no son of David. And he was far from wise and just and righteous like the branch had to be. And that contrast that we laid out through those first three chapters, I tried to go through that quick and sum up a lot of what we looked at last week. That contrast carries throughout the rest of the book. Turn over to Matthew 11. We saw it when Jesus is defending the character of John the Baptist after he says, are you the promised one or should we look for another? And Jesus says, hey, I'm the one and points to all of the miracles that he's been doing and says, blessed is he who doesn't stumble because of me or take offense at me. And he thought that might make John look weak in the eyes of the people and he, and he challenges them in Matthew eleven seven through 15 about John the Baptist's righteousness. And he said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? No, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? <laughs> those who wear soft clothing, those soft men, they're in king's palaces. Herod's the soft man, the man that arrested this guy. That's your soft dude, not, not John the Baptist. But what did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way for you. He was my forerunner, Jesus is saying. This isn't a weak man. The weak man's in the palace right now. This was the messenger who preached the right ways for me to walk in, and now I'm walking him out. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there hasn't arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the, hev- the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. He's pointing back to the fact that, that Herod had John the Baptist arrested. And by doing that, he was a violent man taking the kingdom by force, trying to hold on to the kingdom of God. But can you thwart God's plan? We've we handled that, haven't we? Can't thwart God's plan. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Everything in the Old Testament and in this last prophet was all prophesying until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is the Elijah who was to come. All those prophets and this one is pointing to the fulfillment of everything. Jesus is saying, that's me. Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm the one that's replacing Herod. I'm the true promised king. The chapter 1 king is the king, not the chapter 2 king, not him. And how can you tell? By how they responded to the chapter 3 prophet. That's how you can tell. And that's what we look at. Going forward, you'll see the same thing in the mountain of transfiguration. The disciples asked Jesus, Why did the scribes say, Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. That's talking about who? Who? So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. John the Baptist came as the Elijah. Herod didn't recognize him, did to him whatever he wished, which we now know is having him beheaded, rejecting him completely. But he was actually ushering in my walk. He was going through the path that I'm going to go through first, that path of suffering and the path of obedience that the Son of Man Himself would also go down to die for our sins. Well, I also we mentioned that we saw it in the triumphal entry last week. In Matthew 21, 9 through 27, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and people are saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna to God in the highest. He gets there being announced as the king and he goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple and runs everybody out. And they ask him, by what authority do you do this? And and he said, I'll ask you also a question. The preaching of John the Baptist, what's its origin? Is it from heaven or of men? They, They wouldn't answer the question. He said, I won't tell you then by what authority I do it. But he was answering the question with that question. John the Baptist was preaching the true law of God. It came from heaven. I've walked in it and since I've walked in it, I'm the promised king who has the authority to go into the temple and cleanse it. I'm the one. I'm the king. Not Herod. Me. That's what Jesus is saying. You see it over and over and over again. And that takes us back to our text for this week. I told you we'd get there. It took a little while, but we got there. The contrast between Herod and Jesus. If you, if you do just what I've done for the last several weeks, you, you do a lot of good things, but you actually miss what Matthew's doing. Because Matthew is putting these narratives back to back in order to contrast Herod and his response to John and Jesus and his response to John. He's contrasting exactly what we laid out last week and then I briefly recounted for you again today. The information that Matthew gives prior to Herod's birthday narrative and the feeding of the 5,000 demands that we consider this book-wide contrast between Jesus and the Herodian kings and its relationship to John the Baptist. Look at Matthew 14, 1 through 5. That's before we get to the narrative of John the Baptist's murder by Herod, but it gives you the background. At that time... Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist, who is risen from the dead. And that's why the miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, his conscience is eating at him. When when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and he put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, for John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. So verses 1-5 through 5 introduce these two connected narratives and notice the hinge that connects them. Let's read Matthew 14, 6-21. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, "'Give me here on a platter.' the head of John the Baptist. And although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. And he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. Now, here's the hinge that it swings on. Now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away so that they might go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We only have five loaves and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. And ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. There were about five thousand men who ate besides the women and children. Basically, half this section from 6 to 12 is devoted to the narrative of Herod's debaucherous birthday party, right? And then the other half, 13 through 21, is devoted to the feeding of the 5,000 with the news of John the Baptist's death being the hinge that connects the two. It's introduced with the arrest of John the Baptist and the reason for that arrest Then the narrative of the birthday party and the murder of John the Baptist is the narrative, then the hinge that connects the next narrative, which is Jesus responding to that to go to a secluded place and feeding the 5,000s. With the conflict between the crony king and Christ the king being set up by the very structure of Matthew's gospel, it's unsurprising that these two stories perfectly mirror each other point by point. And that's what I'm going to try to do is show you how they mirror each other in the exact flow with exact opposites every time all the way through eight points of exact mirroring that you see. First of all, look at the setting. What's Herod's setting? Well, verse 6 when Herod's birthday came... Birthday here speaks of a birthday feast, a big party. Roman birthday parties were marked by gluttony, excessive drinking, erotic dancing, and sexual indulgence. It was an awful, godless sort of party. Herod's conscience must be on life support, all but ruined, because he's arrested a man for a crime. Here's the crime. Of warning him to repent of his sin. John didn't do anything wrong... John called him out for doing something wrong and Herod responds by having him arrested. And Herod knew that John was a righteous and holy man. Mark 6.20 tells us that Herod was afraid of John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and that he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed and he used to enjoy listening to him. He respected John the Baptist. But he's got John the Baptist arrested and in prison, has had him there for a year... But his conscience isn't very pricked about it because he put all of that out of his mind and had a big party. That's what Herod's doing. When, you, when you're only concerned with your own pleasure, you become numb to any hurting or any need around you. Have you ever noticed that? You turn inward on yourself and you don't care about anything. You're numb to everything that happens. Or even any sin within you. You don't care about your own sin anymore because you're on this quest for your own pleasure. And that's all that matters. It's the only thing that can get any attention from you. That's Herod. But Jesus is the exact opposite. Look at how this, this settings mirror themselves. In verse 6, you get the setting of the hedonistic party, Herod's hedonistic party. But Jesus is in healing solitude. Look at verse 13. Jesus heard about John and he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. Herod did a big party. Jesus is in a secluded place by himself. Jesus hears of John the Baptist's death and his response is to retreat to a secluded place to process everything that happened, to pray and to grieve, far from burying the reality of the brokenness of the world and partying on. While Herod is pursuing empty, endless pleasure, Jesus is concerned with the brokenness in the world in an appropriate and responsible way. When you're doing well, you're numb to everything. I mean, when you're doing poorly, you're numb to everything. When you're doing well, you'll feel the brokenness around you. You'll have a burden, won't you? Jesus was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. He couldn't just turn his eyes to the suffering around him and concentrate on his own hedonistic pleasure. No, that's not the kind of king Jesus was. And it's even set up in this setting... But the contrast doesn't end with their opposite settings. In both narratives, a new character or characters are added to the plot that further demonstrate the character of each king. Well, who are the additional characters added? Well, in Herod's story, it's a seductive temptress. In verse 6, the daughter of Herodias danced before them. At Herod's debaucherous birthday party, self centered Herod, drunk on pleasure, is confronted with what? With more pleasure. A little girl, and this is how sick it gets, she's between 12 and 14 years old, is provocatively dancing in front of King Herod, in front of his lords, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. It tells us that in Mark 6, 21, the parallel passage. When you put yourself in sinful settings, don't be surprised when wicked things escalate. You go and you think, oh, we're just having some good, clean fun. And the good, clean fun gets a little dirtier. And then the good, clean fun gets a little dirtier still. And you don't care because you're numb to anything that's broken or wrong around you or even the sin within you because you only care about your own pleasure. That's King Herod. That's exactly who he is. But Jesus encounters something different in his secluded place. He doesn't get a seductive tempest. He gets suffering crowds the people that are interested, that are inserted into his narrative, when the people heard this, they followed Jesus on foot from the cities. In verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd. Again, a direct contrast. Jesus is not confronted with something to heighten his pleasure, but of a large crowd that has innumerable needs. And he's alert to those needs. He still feels it. He cares about others because he's not a wicked crony king consumed with his own pleasure. He's a compassionate king who cares about the people that God has entrusted to his care. Herod sees someone who can add to his pleasure. Jesus sees someone who has great needs. And then we see the third contrast in our stories, a contrast of their feelings. Look at 6b also. The daughter of Herod danced before them. And what was Herod's response? It pleased Herod. The word here for pleased is to satisfy, to flatter, or even to excite. The word's often used as an euphemism for sexually aroused. Her glamorous looks and exotic movements pleased Herod to such an extent that he lost all sense of propriety and dignity if he ever had any. And make no mistake, there is pleasure in sin for a season. It has an expiration date though, doesn't it? He Herod is pursuing pleasure. He's finding it and that's all he's concerned with and he doesn't care that it has an expiration date. He doesn't care about the warnings of the judgment of God. Crony King Herod is fixated on immediate gratification. This what feels good right now. Have you noticed when you're in this state of mind... You only care about what pleases me right now. Long-term effects, we don't care about that. Lose everything I have. Hinder every relationship I've got. Wreck my marriage. It doesn't matter. I only care about my pleasure that I can get right now. Whether it's a high from drugs or a high from sex or a high from prestige, whatever it is, you care about right now. That's crony King Herod. Far from the righteousness of God. Far from being able to save his people from their sins. But as just the opposite, we see the feelings in the same order. The feelings of King Jesus in verse 14. When, Herod, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them. The pleasure of Herod contrasted with the compassion of Jesus. Just like the debaucherous pleasure of Herod this word for compassion is also an intense word but Herod is an intense word about his own pleasure and Jesus is an intense word where he feels deeply the sufferings of others he cares about how others are what they're going through the word describes Jesus' feelings, this compassion. It's untranslated as his heart was moved to pity. But even that misses the full impact of this word. It's more of a visceral kind of thing, an ache, a hurt. It can. It's often even used for labor pains, which two of our ladies can relate to when they listen to this online because they had babies this week. It is not a pleasant thing to give birth, is it? Jesus isn't experiencing pleasure. He's in pain over the suffering that he sees around him. When Herod was intensely moved by his desire for his own pleasure, Jesus was intensely moved by seeing the deep need of the crowds. And both narratives then progress to the actions that resulted from these feelings. Same order. They mirror. They sit right on top of each other because is what, this is what Matthew's doing. The product of those feelings. What do they do since Herod wants pleasure and Jesus has compassion? Both things produce actions. Well, Herod's actions are in verse 7. So much so, he was pleased so much so, that he gave a thoughtless oath. He promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked for. When we're addicted to pleasure, there's no end to what men will do to obtain it. Addicts of pleasure will lie, they'll cheat, they'll steal. They'll sacrifice relationships with family and with friends. They'll sacrifice the relationship with their own children. They'll go years and not even see their children. They're numb. They don't care about anything. Why? Because they've got to have that next fix. It's all that matters. Here, Herod makes a thoughtless oath. Why? To gain more pleasure for himself. Even more pleasure. That's all that matters. For what was Herod negotiating here, you might ask? What did he hope to gain by giving this oath while Salome, this young girl, is dancing before him provocatively? Well, the text doesn't say, but it doesn't take too creative of imagination to figure it out, does it? He's wanting her to do extra things for him and he'll promise her anything she wants, up to half the kingdom, to get it. And that with his own 14-year-old or 12-14-year-old to niece. The wickedness just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? In contrast to the thoughtless oath we see as a product of Herod's lust, we see Jesus' compassion produce a thoughtful healing. A thoughtless oath and a thoughtful healing. Jesus healed their sick. Herod Herod was fixated on himself, inwardly focused. Jesus was fixated on others and outwardly focused. And experienced this visceral compassion. Remember the word for compassion is related to labor pains, right? I pointed that out. Labor pains don't just happen and go away, they lead to something. The compassionate feelings, the bowels of mercy gave birth to compassionate actions. Jesus loved his neighbor. And he didn't just love him by, oh, I just love you so much. By love, he actually filled the needs that he saw around him. The church should be seeing needs. The people of God should be seeing needs, moved to compassion. And because of that, serving and loving their neighbor. That's fulfillment of the law. Romans 13.8 Know no no man anything except to love one another for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And now both narratives progress to a third party given a command. You get a temptation. Here's Herod's temptation in verse 8. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Herodias had been waiting had been wanting John the Baptist dead for some time. And she set up this whole episode using her own daughter as a seductress to set the scenario up. Notice how the evil of the temptation progressed. A hedonistic drunken birthday party progressed to an incestuous pedophilia of sorts. And now it's ended in a conspiracy to commit murder. Temptations become more heinous the more you give in. You give in a little and then you give in more. And before long your conscience is seared and you can do absolutely anything. And Jesus though has never given in to the first temptation, but Herod is given in to a string of them. His tempters are not tempted. Jesus' tempters aren't tempting him with any sort of wickedness. He's never had any propensity to wickedness. But they do tempt him with something. They just tempt him with ease. Herod is tempted with murder. Jesus is tempted with ease. Basically, they, his disciples are the tempters here, and they're basically just saying, You've done enough. Look at verse 15. Send them away. The disciples came to him and said, The place is desolate, and the hour is already late. You've been healing these people all day long, and we were already tired, and we were here to try to grieve over John the Baptist. It's late. Send the crowds away. You've done enough. You ever feel like you've done enough? Aren't you glad Jesus didn't feel like he had done enough when he was tired but had to walk through Galgotha, had to carry the cross on his shoulders and had to go to Calvary on your behalf? He wasn't too tired to pour himself out for your need. I'm glad we've got a compassionate Savior who doesn't let his I've done enough interfere with him doing what's necessary to love his people. Aren't you? The place is desolate, the hour's already late, so send the crowds away. That they might go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Let them take care of themselves. The Spirit seems to be something like, Come on, Jesus, be reasonable. There's nowhere here for these people to get any food. It's getting late. We've been here all day. We're tired. We haven't had anything to eat all day. And, or even to find what we might eat. The only reasonable thing is to send them on their way. They need to eat. We need some rest and time alone. Herod is tempted to commit murder, to get more pleasure. Jesus is tempted to just stop serving, to get more rest. The contrast couldn't be more stark, could they? And neither could their response. And the responses are the next thing that comes in both narratives. We have Herod who does the will of men, and we have Jesus who does the will of God. We begin with Herod in the will of man. Verse 9, what does he do when he's tempted to kill John the Baptist to fulfill his oath? Although he was grieved... The king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. Herod gives in to the will of men. Even though Herod was grieved because of the warmth that he had toward John the Baptist, he still had him executed. We will wrong people we even like when we're given over to our own desire and for our own lusts and our own pleasure. Even people we care about. We can care about them and think, well, since I have care and love in my heart, that means deep down I'm really a good person. No, it actually just shows how extremely wicked you really are. That's what it shows. Although he was grieved, he had him executed. Why? To save face. He had given an oath. He cared more about saving faith with, his, faith with his dinner guests than he did about the very life of the righteous man, John the Baptist, or the judgment of God that he had been warned of. He didn't care about any of that anymore. When we only care about how things affect us, no evil is beyond our capabilities. But Jesus didn't care about the pressure he was getting from his exhausted disciples. He didn't care if they were leaning on him. John the Baptist didn't want to be leaned on or looked down on or thought bad of by men. The fear of man is an enemy of the fear of God. If you've got one, you can't really have the other, can you? If you've got true fear of God, you're not really going to care what any man says or does to you. And if you've got fear of man, you won't care what God does. They're opposites. Jesus, he cared about the will of God. But Jesus, they wanted him to send them away. Verse 16, but Jesus said to them, but he does the opposite. Herod did the same. Jesus does the opposite. But Jesus said to them, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Instead of obeying the command of the disciples to send them away, Jesus gave a command of his own. Jesus turns their attention away from the hopelessness of the situation and their easy solution of sending the crowds away to get food for themselves. And he invites them to think about how they can help. And all these enormous contrasts lead to a vastly different uh, climax to the story. We get to this climax, these climaxes. That's the next thing that both stories go to. Herod's climax is a wicked woman's vengeance. Look at verse 10. He sent and had John the Baptist beheaded in prison, and his head was brought out on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Although, John knew John, although Herod knew John was righteous and holy, although he used to enjoy listening to him, he would literally sacrifice John the Baptist on the altar of his own pleasure to maintain his reputation and keep good graces with his wife or his so-called wife. What a grotesque display. And unwittingly, he was murder- murdering the forerunner of the promised Messiah, the one that would make straight the path for the promised king who would be able to sit on the throne forever. He was disqualifying himself from being that king 100% and completely and obviously by killing the forerunner of Christ, by killing John the Baptist. And immediately we contrast the climax of the story of... The, of John the Baptist's death or Herod's murderous dinner party with the climax of the feeding of the 5,000, a needy people's provision, in an act of. Self-service, Herod heeds Salome's order to give the head of John on a platter, but Jesus gives an order of his own so that he can serve the people. He orders them, verse 19, to sit down in the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and he looks up to heaven, and he blessed the food, and he broke the loaves, and he gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. When you love, man, there's, you can do a lot. God blesses our efforts when we pour out ourselves in love. He absolutely does. Jesus is, Jesus shows us the way. And then we get, lastly, to this last contrast of these two kings, the crony king and Christ the king, and that's the resolution of the story. The useless body of an innocent man, verse 12, his disciples, John's disciples, came and took away the body, the headless body of John the Baptist, and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus... And what's the resolution of Jesus' story? How does it all resolve after everybody's fed? The useful scraps of life-sustaining miracle are collected. Look at verse 20. They, Jesus' disciples, pick up what was left over the broken pieces. Twelve baskets full. It fed everybody and there was twelve baskets left over. And there were about 5,000 men who ate besides the women and children. At this point, the contrast becomes more intense between Herod, the taker of life, and Jesus, the giver of life. Each from the center of his being, out of who they are. Herod has this impulse toward pleasure and it ends in him killing because he's consumed with his own pleasure. Jesus has this impulse toward compassion and it ends in him feeding the multitudes and giving life out of who they are at their being. While Herod cuts off the head of John the Baptist, Jesus' insides go out to a needy multitude around him. Herod's story begins with a birthday feast and ends with the death of John the Baptist, right? It starts with a birthday feast, ends with the death of John the Baptist. Jesus' story begins with the report of the death of John the Baptist and then ends in a feast. Notice, one, you start feasting and you end in death. The other, you start with death and you end in feasting. One of them is the way of delayed gratification. I'm going to walk the righteous path and it will end in glory. The other is I'm going to grab glory for myself and it will end in death. Does that remind you of anything? That takes you back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? I've got to have this fruit and I want it and I want it right now. Well, God says you can. not It doesn't matter. I'll take it. And the whole world is thrust into death. And I believe there's something greater being foreshadowed here something even more miraculous, something more permanent, even eternally life-giving. Herod's dealings with John ended in the useless body of an innocent man being buried. But Jesus' interaction with John still isn't complete. He's dead, but Jesus ain't done. Jesus has to finish what he committed to when he was baptized. Remember, he had to fulfill all righteousness he arrived in Galilee in the Jordan to be baptized by John. John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized of you, yet you come to me. And Jesus answered and said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it's permitted, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is committing to perfectly obeying the law as preached by John. And in so doing, he will become the Lamb of God. He would become the one who would fulfill that Zechariah 6 that would build the temple, who would unite the offices. He would perfectly keep the law of God so that he could save his people from their sins and there would be no more need for a temple. Now look back at verse 19 one more time in our text. Verse 19 points us forward to something that is necessary for this to actually be fulfilled that will actually lead to the saving of His people from their sins and a feeding that's much more miraculous than the feeding of the 5,000. Looking up toward heaven, He blessed the food and breaking the loaves, He gave them to the disciples. Does that sound familiar? That language is used later. Turn to Matthew 26, 26 through 29. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine anymore from this day forward until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. To establish this kingdom of priests and this holy nation, in order to save his people from their sins, he had to perfectly keep the law in this act of giving his life up on the cross becoming the true bread out of heaven and the true drink. Now let's flip forward to see where Jesus' body is broken and his blood is shed. And we're going to see this whole contrast between Herod and Jesus play out again. Look at Matthew 27, 37. Here's the crucifixion narrative. You can almost just guess what's going to come. Matthew 27, 37. When they nailed Jesus to the cross, above His head they put up a charge against Him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. There you've got the King. I wouldn't be surprised if the next thing it mentions is the temple. Look at verse 27, 39-40. And those who were passing by were hurling abuse at Him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself." If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. And then there's going to be a temptation to save himself so he can save face. In verse 27 through 41 through 42, Herod killed John the Baptist to save face. Maybe Jesus will save himself to save face. In the same way, the chief priests also along with the scribes and elders were mocking him and saying, He saved others, himself he cannot save. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. I wouldn't be surprised if the next thing it mentions in this text is John the Baptist. Look at 27:45 through 49. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani," which is "'My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?' And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, "'This man is calling for Elijah.' And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, filled it with sour vinegar and put it on a reed, and they gave him a drink. But the rest said, "'Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him.' No." Elijah's the one that he baptized him. It was the Elijah who was to come that pointed him to the necessary death on the cross that would have to happen as the ultimate act of compassion to save his people from their sins. Look at the next thing he has in this keeping of the law. Verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. Jesus' love fulfilled the law. His compassion had no end. He, what is the great commandment of the law? To love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. That Jesus in his love of neighbor gave up his life, fulfilling the law perfectly that he had been immersed in. John the Baptist's perfect teaching and preaching of compassion. Jesus walked those straight paths all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus made himself the king, not Herod, the true king, the promised Messiah through the death on the cross by fulfilling everything. And what's the outcome? Look at verse 51. And behold... The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil was torn. You had access to God now. There's no more need for a temple. And just a few years later, about 40 years later, we're going to have the temple completely demolished and thrown into the sea because the true king is seated at the right hand of the throne of God making intercession for you as the promised priest king right now. That's what you've got in King Jesus. He's everything in his compassion that Herod wasn't. In his debaucherous quest for pleasure. At the end of Herod's story, the useless body of a relatively innocent man was buried. At the end of Jesus' story, the infinitely useful body of an absolutely innocent man was buried, but only temporarily. Jesus didn't stay in that ground. Jesus came forth. Joseph took the body, Joseph of Arimathea, and he buried it. But three days later, that true temple came back just like he said it would in Matthew 27, verses 39 through 40. He raised that temple up again, and now he is the chief cornerstone that we are placed in as the true temple of God. The stone which the builders rejected, became the chief corner. And this was the work of the Lord, and it is marvelous in our sight, is it not? And now, as the resurrected, exalted Savior, that's where we get the Great Commission. Look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The resurrected Jesus appears to His disciples after fulfilling the law and raising from the dead. And he tells them, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. What authority does Herod have? None. Not only that, but we can go higher than Herod. We can go to Pilate and we can go to Caesar and we can go to any human king. No, no. Jesus is king of kings, lord of lords. Why? Because he perfectly fulfilled the law and established an eternal kingdom that cannot be destroyed. And we're here 2,000 years later. Worshiping King Jesus who is going forth conquering and to conquer not with a sword but with a message of His love lived out through His people and we cannot lose. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. Here's the charge to, you, to us. Make disciples of all the nations. He's got authority over all of them. Make disciples of all of them. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching all the nations. Well, that's colonizing. Yep, sure is. In the name of Jesus, it sure is. Yeah, that sounds like Christian nationalism. Yep. Nations that are governed over by the principles of Jesus Christ, which will bring human flourishing. It's the most loving thing we can do. Yep. Make disciples of the nations. Herod's abolished. He's under the feet of King Jesus. And we go with all the authority of heaven. And we disciple everybody. And we can't lose. We've forgotten that message. We're waiting to be plowed over. When the Bible tells me that we're the plow... And he that puts his hands to the plow and looks back isn't even fit for the kingdom of heaven. Keep plowing, guys. You can't lose. You have the Holy Spirit of the living God living within you and all the authority of heaven behind you. King Jesus has established a kingdom and it will spread. It will grow like mustard seed. The birds of the air will rest in its branches and hide in its shade. It will spread like leaven through a whole lump until the whole lump of dough is leavened. Maximum impact over the whole world. Jesus did that because he was everything Herod wasn't and everything no other king before or after has been. Worship this resurrected king and be used by him in the building of his kingdom. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this contrast you lay out for us. I pray that we will be emboldened by it, that we will be uh, comforted by the fact that we're forgiven of our sins, but also that we'll be emboldened by the fact that the Holy Spirit of the living God lives within us and greater things than he did, we will do because he sent the Holy Spirit to us. Lord, use us to expand your kingdom for your name's sake, honor and glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.